8 through 11 is the perfect scripture for Palm Sunday. If you're not going to preach on a Palm Sunday kind of text, this one uh, speaks of all those themes that we have already sung about in the hymns, the Palm Sunday hymns that we have sung. So I'm, I was thinking uh, if I should go ahead with this series on Revelation 2 since we have these special Sundays coming up. I'm going to uh, not preach on Revelation next week, but but uh, this is the perfect text for us today as we think about Christ's willingness to ride into Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be taken to the cross and, and lay down his life for sinners such as we are. Let us turn our attention now to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May God write its truth upon our hearts today. Well, we're in the midst of these seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we come today to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is modern-day Izmir, Turkey. And this particular church uh, has quite different circumstances than what we saw last week as we looked at the church at Ephesus. I want you to point out something about these seven letters to the churches that we see here in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. They all begin with a, a to and a from, just like any letter might, uh, kind of the uh, addressee and addressor. And in these, uh, verse 8, uh, it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to light. And if you look at each of the letters here in chapters 2 and 3, you will see that the from part always begins with the words of, and then there is some description of Jesus how Jesus describes himself in each of these letters, because in each letter he is described differently, but how he is described in each of those letters is significant. And we need to pay attention to it, because how he is described reinforces the message part of the letter. For example, look back at verse 1. You remember last week, we looked at the letter to the Ephesians, and it begins to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And when you read the body of the letter, you find that Jesus, who walks among those golden lampstands, which are the churches, has threatened to remove their lampstand. That's the threat that we find here in this letter to the Ephesians. You find that Jesus has threatened to remove it from its place there if they did not return to their first love. So you see 
how the description of Jesus in the from part, the words of how Jesus is described, is tied in with the message of that letter. And the letter before us today is no different to the church in Smyrna. Jesus here refers to himself as the first and the last who died and came to life. We're getting a little preview of Easter, preview of the resurrection here in these words. So to fully appreciate the message to the church in Smyrna, we must understand what it means that Jesus is the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, the second part of that is not so hard to understand. We understand that Jesus died and, and rose again from the dead. But what does it mean here, this title, the first and the last? Well, it's synonymous with two other titles we see in Revelation. They all mean the same thing. Sometimes Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and Omega. Uh, the al Alpha, of course, is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the, the Greek alphabet, so it's the first and last letters of the alphabet, uh, the Greek alphabet, and then the, there's also the title, the beginning and the end, the beginning and the end, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, these all refer to Christ, and you can see them all three together piled up on one another at the end of this book in Revelation 22:13. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, so what does it mean? What does it mean that he is the first and the last? Well, first, this title is a name that God uses for himself in the Old Testament. We see it several times in the book of Isaiah. So when Jesus applies this title to himself, he's identifying himself as God. He is divine. He is the, he is the, the one who has used this this title throughout all eternity. And I've given you on your sheet there one example from Isaiah 44 where God says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me since I've appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So when we see Jesus revealing himself as the first and the last here to the, to the, to the Smyrna church, or the Alpha and the Omega, or the beginning and the end, he is identifying himself as God, who has eternal existence and eternal power. Jesus is eternal. No one was before him. That's why Jesus can say things like he did to the Pharisees. You remember uh, they were having this discussion about children of Abraham, and, and Jesus said this statement, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They knew what he was talking about when he said that. He was identifying himself as God, as the one who preceded even their father Abraham, who is the I Am, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. They pick up rocks to stone him because they know that, well, they thought that he was blaspheming, but he wasn't blaspheming because he was being truthful. He is God, God incarnate, God in the flesh. So he is the first 
before anything else. He was. And he is the last. No one's going to outlive Jesus. You're not going to be around and Jesus is not going to be around. Everything begins and ends with him. He is everlasting. He is eternal. He is the first and he is the last. This title not only speaks to his eternity, but it also speaks to his power and sovereignty over everything. Everything begins and ends with him. He created everything. Paul writes about Jesus in his letter to the Colossians. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is preeminent over everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's all about him. Everything is about Jesus. It's all through him and for him. That's what Paul says in Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. So when you think about all the ultimate questions of life, you know, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? These ultimate questions that everyone must answer. Well, all those questions are answered by him. All those questions are answered by him. And I don't mean that he gives the answer, but I mean that he is the answer. It seems trite when you think of the bumper sticker kind of slogan, Jesus is the answer. Well, it's true. He is the answer to all the ultimate questions because everything is about him. If we're living out of accord with Jesus, then we are living out of accord with the entire purpose of the universe. The universe is moving in one direction and we're going in the opposite. And that's true of so many today who rejected Christ. Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with that ultimate question. What is the chief end of man? What is man's ultimate purpose? What is, what, what is he here for? Man's chief end, his chief purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him Forever. It's all about him. He is the first and last who died and came to life so that we sinful humans can through him enjoy a relationship with God forever. That's what it's all about. And this makes Jesus the ultimate priority in all of creation and beyond. If Jesus is not a priority for you today, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of history. Because all of history is his story. It's all about him. Being the first and the last means that everything was created through him and everything will have to answer to him. I've given you this quote by Richard of St. Victor where he paraphrased these words about Jesus in this way. I am the first and the last, first through creation, last through retribution, 
First, because before me a God was not formed. Last, because after me there shall not be another. First, because all things are from me. Last, because all things are to me. From me, the beginning, to me, the end. First, because I am the cause of origin. Last, because I am the judge and the end. Everything begins and ends with him. This makes Jesus the ultimate priority in creation and beyond. Now people today want to treat Jesus like he's just one of the many options out there in the realm of faith and spirituality that one can choose from. And and all these different leaders, religious leaders, if you follow their teaching, you'll end up at the top of the mountain anyway. So it doesn't really matter which one you follow. But that's not what Jesus claims for himself. He alone is the first and the last. And everyone who has ever lived will ultimately and finally have to give an account of themselves to him. He is the way, the truth, and the the life. There is no other. Now, we need to understand that as we come to these words, because this is the one who's speaking to us today. It's not just another voice. This is God's word from the one who is the beginning and the end, the one who is the first and the last, the one who it's all about. He has something for us today. He had something for the church in Smyrna, in their day. And we need to heed what is written here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does the church say to, what does Jesus say to the church in Smyrna today? What is Jesus saying to our church today? What is Jesus saying to us as individuals today? Well, as we look at what it actually says here in the body of this letter, We see here, unlike the Ephesian church, this church is not rebuked. Uh, They are not not, uh, uh, doing anything that Jesus points out wrong. They are only commended and encouraged in the path that they are on. Now as we look at uh, what's going on here in Smyrna, they're not to us in, uh, in an enviable position. It's not like you know, when you say, uh, here's a great church, and we're talking about church revitalization, and, you know, here's a, here's a church we want to model ourselves out. I don't know if anybody's really want to jump in here with, this, with the Smyrna church, because some of them are about to die for their faith, as they're faithful to the Lord in their context. So we need to understand, even though our context is quite different from the church in Smyrna in those days, There are words here for us today. If you look at the body, there are two commands given, two imperatives. And they are, first of all, do not fear. Don't fear what's about to happen to you. And Jesus tells them what's about to happen. Don't fear. And then then the other one is be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end. And those are two things that we need to pay heed to today. Whatever our context is, We need not fear. As we come into conflict with the world, we need to continue to be faithful even unto death. These go hand in hand. You can't have courage without faith. If you come into a situation where you're persecuted because you're identified as a Christian, if you don't trust the Lord, 
you're going to question your faith. You're going to question what it's all about, why you're here, why is this happening to me, instead of trusting that Jesus has a purpose behind it all. So you cannot live with courage without living by faith. So these go hand in hand. So what does it look like? As we look at the, the example of the Smyrna church here, what does it look like to live with faith and courage in the first and the last, the one who says he's the first and the last who died and came to life? Well, I've given you four things here today that uh, I think will be an encouragement to us. First, trusting the first and last, trusting Jesus, redefines our loyalties. Now, in Smyrna, as I said, it's modern-day Izmir, it was one of the greatest cities in Asia Minor. It was famous for its loyalty to the Roman Empire. It was not far from Ephesus, but, of course, quite different than Ephesus. It was one of the first cities in Asia Minor to, to worship the Roman Emperor and because it was so zealous for, the, for, for Caesar worship, for worshiping the Roman emperor as God, that they were rewarded the honor of having a temple erected to the emperor there in Smyrna during the reign of Tiberius. And it also had another temple, maybe the first temple ever, that was dedicated to the goddess of Rome. So the Smyrna population loved them some Rome. They were all about Rome, loyal to the Caesar, and they were very involved in emperor worship. Now this would have made it very, very, as we see here, uncomfortable for Christians because a Christian, of course, would not say that Caesar is Lord, only Jesus is Lord, they would have had all kinds of troubles, as you can see in this passage, because they would, of course, refuse to bow the knee to the Roman emperor. Uh, and once you became identified as a Christian, you would, have, you would have had people refuse to do business with you. You would have been looked on as a traitor to the state. You would be disloyal to Rome, to the one that they worshipped. And you would uh, experience extreme poverty, which tells us here that these people were, were undergoing. And people didn't like you. They slandered you. The Jews mentioned here, the Jews had more freedoms than the Christians did in the Roman Empire. And so the Jews would have hopped on board, and, and, uh, or they did in this context, and said, you know, these Christians, you know, you need to get rid of them. They're disloyal. They kind of piled on and egged on the persecution they spoke poorly, slandered. The word is blasphemed, actually, in the Greek. They blasphemed the Christians and ruined their reputations. So you were out of bounds with the law as you were worshiping this, the, the emperor. So some of them were thrown into prison. See, they had different loyalties than the rest of the people in Smyrna. They were loyalty, loyal to King Jesus. And they weren't loyal to Rome or the emperor of Rome. They were loyal to Christ and his kingdom. That's a lesson for us today. We can, we can have divided loyalties. We can spend all of our time worrying about our earthly citizenship, our earthly nation, and neglect the one kingdom that we should, be as have, that we should have as our priority. We shouldn't be more worried about our state than we are about the kingdom. 
of Christ. That should be a priority for us, no matter what the consequences are. These people in Smyrna were being faithful to Jesus, and it was causing them trouble. To follow the one who it's all about. See, the people in Smyrna are now on the right side of history. They know the truth. The people who were worshiping the emperor know the truth as well. And it's not good news for them. They are touched by the second death. Well, Jesus knows their trouble. And they were having trouble because they were trusting Jesus. They were completely loyal to Jesus. And I just want us to think about it. If we want to be a, a vital church, we must be loyal to Jesus. He must be our number one loyalty. Our citizenship is in heaven. Yeah, we have, we're all probably here American citizens, but more importantly, our citizenship is in heaven and we're waiting for a Savior from there. Well, secondly, trusting the first and last redefines wealth for us. We see here, I know your, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Well, the word there for poverty is a, not the word for just being poor. You know, you can be poor, you just don't have a lot, you don't have any land. Uh, maybe you just have the, the house that you live in and, and you're, you don't have a lot of material possessions or money at your disposal. You're a poor person. But this is not that word. This word is the word for destitute. These people were destitute. They were, they were reduced to being in the position of beggars. They did not have anything. It had all been taken from them. Yet Jesus says they are rich. And it speaks to the value of Christ's kingdom. Are our values matching up with Christ's kingdom? You know, we spend a lot of time and effort accumulating wealth and money, and we, we, try to, we, we do uh, sadly find our security in our bank accounts and our retirement accounts. But when we trust in Christ alone, that redefines our values. What's most important? It's not, you know, who has the most toys at the end wins, as the famous bumper sticker goes. We need to be rich in the treasures of heaven. Make those things our priority. And what are those treasures? I mean, we can talk about all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that come to us through Christ. And that's why he says they're rich. They didn't have a, a thing on earth, but they had everything in heaven. They had laid up treasures in heaven. Are we laying up treasures in heaven? If we're trusting in the, the one who is the first and the last, who it's, who it's all about, then that's where our priority should lie. That's where our value should lie, not in material possessions or money or bank accounts or whatever, but in the Lord and, and the things that he values. Just look at the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 or Luke 6. You see there that in Jesus' kingdom, all the values are all upside down. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are persecuted. These are the people who are blessed, not the, the rich, not the comfortable. Jesus has a different value system than the world's value system. And if we are true, vital followers of Christ, we will adopt that value system and trust him to live courageously depending upon him to provide for us. He told us, you know, in his words, Sermon on the Mount, you know, look at the, look at the, 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 tree, the, the lilies of the field. They, they don't worry about these things. 
Jesus knows when the bird falls. He knows all your needs, all your cares, and he will take care of you. Now, he blesses some of us with wealth. He blesses some of us with poverty. And we need to make sure that if we're one of those who are blessed with wealth, that we use that wealth for his ends, for his goals, for his, to, to, to do the things that he values. That's what it means to trust in him. Because sometimes he gives people wealth. Well, thirdly, trusting the first and last redefines trouble. And these people had all the tribulation that they wanted, more than what they wanted, I'm sure. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see here, when, when we think of our lives and the trouble we face, if we're trusting in Christ, if we're trusting in Jesus, if we're trusting in the one who is the first and the last, it helps us understand the trouble we face. If we're faithfully following him, it will put us into conflict with the world and we will suffer for doing good. Jesus promised that that would happen to all of his followers. But it also means that we have his promises about that suffering. We have his understanding and his interpretation of those sufferings. And here we see that it is not just an act of humans, but it is the devil. It is the one who opposes the church, the accuser, coming against Christ's people. He's the one that's behind all this. And when you understand that, it puts a proper perspective on things. And when you understand that these things are not just random acts of violence against the church, but they are testing. Jesus said this is a test. Well, that gives courage, doesn't it? If you know this is a test coming from the evil one who opposes the church, it gives you a little more, more backbone to say, yes, the Lord has a purpose by this, and I want to show that my faith is real and true, and I'm going to hang in there. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's a great promise that we can hang, our, hang eternity on. So when we think about trouble... And, and we're putting our trust in Christ, we can have a true understanding of what that's all about. And it's all serving his ultimate purpose because he's the first and the last. It's all about him. It's all about his people. And as we read through, if you read through the book of Revelation, you'll see there's going to be forces of evil that come against the church and they're all going to fail. They're going to make war against the Lamb and He will conquer them because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and His people are called to Him and, and are holy to Him. Well, fourthly, trusting the first and the last redefines eternity for us. He says, be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life, the crown, a trophy, the reward, the, 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 the victory. Uh, the picture you hear is of a victory wreath, garland, for the one who overcomes and, and wins the race. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What, is, what we're crowned with by being faithful is life, true life. That's what we have in eternity. And it tells us in verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, if we read on into Revelation, we find out that the second death is the lake of fires, where the beast and where the, the devil and all of his angels and all those who oppose the church are going to be thrown. 
eternal damnation, but the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If we're trusting in the one who is the first and the last, we can have that assurance that we, if we remain faithful to him, walk with him, trust in him, that, and live courageously for him, that we will inherit eternal life. We will be rewarded the crown of life. We will not be hurt by the second death. Yes, we will experience the first death, but we will not experience the second death. The first death will just be our, our transference into that life, that crown of life that he's talking about. Now the question is, as we conclude here, is Jesus trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? If he's the first and the last, if everything's all about him, and, and, and all of history is tending towards his end, the, the end that he has designed for it, that we read about in this book, are you trusting in him? Is, is he trustworthy? And I say he is. Scriptures say he is. President Harry Truman made the phrase, the buck stops here famous. He had a sign on his desk, the buck stops here. And it just meant that he wouldn't pass the buck. You know, we use that phrase, to pass the buck. It means uh, responsibility. What, what Truman was saying was responsibility is not going to be thrown off on anyone else. I'm going to take responsibility. Once it reaches my desk, it's going to reach the final spot because it's reached, in American terms, the highest authority in the land. So the buck stops here. He wasn't going to pass it off to someone else. Well, that phrase, pass the buck, is an interesting phrase. I I was looking it up, and uh, it comes most likely from the French expression, Bouc émissaire. Pardon my French. It's probably terrible. Bouc émissaire. And that word, bouc émissaire, is the biblical word for scapegoat. Pass the buck means you're not going to put the blame on anyone else. You're not going to pass the buck. You're not going to put it on the scapegoat. Now in Leviticus 16, we read about the scapegoat. They brought two two uh, animals to be sacrificed, and one by lot was chosen to be sacrificed at the altar. The other, the sins were ceremonially placed on the head of the scapegoat, and they were, this, the goat was sent out into the wilderness as a symbol that, that our sins were removed from us, the scapegoat. Well, Jesus being the first and the last, the one who died as a scapegoat for us, and rose again. Is he trustworthy? Because he, he's not passed the buck. Yes, he is. Because he has not passed the buck to anyone else. The responsibility for our sin was laid on him. He didn't slough it off to anybody else. He didn't put it back on us. He took it himself because he is the highest authority. The highest authority took our sins and bore them on the cross. He was the scapegoat for us. That was a picture of Christ that was given to us in Leviticus 16, and he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And because of that, we can live with courage and, and trust in him. Look what this one who is beyond all majesty, what he has humbled himself to do for us. And we see that in Palm Sunday as he humbly rides in to Jerusalem to die for us. Yes, you can trust him. May God grant us grace to continuously trust him, 
to continuously be faithful to him and to live with courage, putting his word into practice. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that that you have spoken to us here. And, And we pray, Lord, that we would hear it and take it on board and that you would keep it bouncing around in there in our minds and that we would be transformed by your word. Lord, grant us a deeper faith, a deeper trust in you. And grant us more courage to interpret life through your lens and in light of who you are and what you've done for us so that we can, so we can live with courage, not conforming to the pattern of this world, but living under your law, your rule, so that we might bring honor and glory to you who died for us, who, who courageously and faithfully served us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our final hymn...